I was a part of a conversation earlier today with some Methodists talking about the future of Methodism and what's going to happen with all of these Wesleyan denominations that don't seem to understand or know what the heart of Methodism is. Methodism came about in a time when the church was moribund and kind of pointless. It was just something everybody took for granted, but few believed in or put much stock in. And people like John Wesley would read their Bibles and say, this is kind of supposed to be the center of our lives. And so rather than just give in to the culture of their day, they got kind of methodical about growing in discipleship, loving and ministering to the poor, growing in scriptural knowledge and wisdom and discipline. And it was all out of a central concern for the phrase was holiness of heart and life. When I spoke with my friend Absalom on my uh, plain spoken podcast, I uh, interviewed my Nigerian friend Absalom. I said, what, what is it that you Nigerians love about Methodism? And he smiled and he said, holiness. Today, a lot of United Methodist churches are trying to talk about staying UMC, being UMC, United Methodist Church. And one of the arguments they make is that it's distinctly Wesleyan to care for the poor and do social justice and care about um, a lot of things on the Democratic Party's platform. And the thing is, that's not really something that's uniquely Methodist. That's something that belongs to all Christians, all sects, um, except for some mean ones, I don't know. But the thing, the unique question that Methodism came up to answer, the, the unique itch that it came to scratch was this need for holiness. The reason, the purpose of the church in the world is for people who are dissatisfied with the narratives, the stories of the world, the, the, the values of the world, the, the things that the world tells you you need. And, um, they sought something divine and to be unified with the divine. And when, as God is holy, we're, we're called to be holy. So that's Methodism in a nutshell. And if there's any form of Methodism that is not uh, in a discipline-oriented fashion seeking holiness, it's really just not Methodist. They can call themselves Methodists or not Methodist. Anyway, I say all that because um, in this group where we're talking about the heart of Methodism, one of the participants in the conversation says, you know, we really, all this needs to be based on reclaiming scriptural knowledge, a passion for scripture and, and conforming ourselves to it. And that's why we read, uh, coming into the purpose of this podcast, that's why we read the scriptures every Sunday and why I preach on them and, and work so hard to help you understand them. It's because uh, the purpose of the church, especially Methodist church, is to help people who have given up on the world, given up on themselves to actually understand this other way of living. And that means that we read not just the parts that already appeal to us, but the parts that are hard. And so that's what leads into 1 Peter chapter. Is this chapter 3 that I just preached on? I believe it was. Yeah, because chapter 2 ended with slaves. Chapter 3 begins with women. And boy, oh boy, does our era make it hard for you to understand the purpose of those things. 
and and how it is that that could possibly ever work. You know, we have we have closed the door on some things and said no to some things that are not to be reconsidered. And the problem is that in the Bible, it requires us to consider them. I've talked too long about this. I uh, I find that when I just go through the Bible, it requires me to understand and help you understand some things that I think most people would rather not understand. The thing is, when you love the Lord, when you trust in Him, then that that's what gives you the energy and the resolve for doing these unpleasant things. So, I don't want you to dread the next 30 minutes as you listen to this, but I also don't want you to get mad at me whenever I don't do this thing so many pastors do where they go, well, I know it sounds this way, but what it actually means is, or, you know, it was... It meant this in its context, but our context has changed, and now it's... I don't do that. Uh, Pastor Jeffrey, don't play that. I, uh, I'm of the mind that the culture of the kingdom of God stays the same because it's perfect and it is in need, no need of improvement. I'm also, you know, just... I, I forgot to say this from the pulpit, but when you look at people's happiness levels and the dysfunction of our society, I just think it's really silly to imagine that we have perfected the ways of the past. Most of the things that are better about today is not because our culture's changed, but because our technology and our hygiene have. So uh, I think it's just good to carry some humility with you whenever you come to this. So anyway, that's enough setup. I hope it's time well spent. For, I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if your mind is closed to new things, this is just going to be wasted time. You're just going to get angry. But if, if you're open to the possibility that you have something to learn and our culture has something to learn, and that the Bible has something to teach, then I think this will be a really enriching time for you. So, enjoy. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Uh, we're at First Peter chapter 3, which you can find on page 1889 of your Pew Bibles. Now, this, the setup for today, you know, I think a lot of people are really happy that we're finally just working our way through New Testament books, and we can say, hey, I know what's in there. My preacher preached through it, and I paid attention mostly. The thing about the New Testament books, though, is um, they, they make us uncomfortable because, the, okay, so a lot of people are under the impression the Old Testament is full of all the countercultural hard stuff, God is mean, and then the New Testament is all the love stuff, and it's, it's a God who loves us, and he shows us mercy, and, and it doesn't really push us too hard. And the thing is, it's just not true. You know, uh, we have the same God in the Old and New Testament, and both Old and New Testaments uh, correct us in our innermost parts. Uh, they require us to live completely different lives, countercultural lives. Last week, in chapter 2, in chapter, chapters 1 and 2, we've had a consistent theme of this life is full of suffering. And rather than running from it, rather than denying it, rather than uh, avoiding it, our answer is just to lean into it and understand that Christ Jesus went there before us. He suffered unjustly for the sake of sinners. That's you and me. And if we are in Christ, then that's how we live. And so chapter 2 ended with uh, a household code that begins at the bottom of the household hierarchy with slaves. Slaves are at the bottom. Then you have children. Then you have women. Then you have men. 
Um, that's an ancient Roman culture. That's in most cultures across history. Now, we live in a culture in which we have explicitly um, rebuked the notion of class or rank or hierarchy. And we stand at a point in history where uh, we've been saying for decades, no, we're all equal, everybody gets a vote, everybody has the exact same amount of power. And there are some ways legally in which that's true. There are other ways in which we have had to reckon with the fact that there is a hierarchy wherever we go. Whether you're talking about a hierarchy at work, a hierarchy in the family, a hierarchy in society, uh, we have elites that live very different lives in this country than people who uh, are on the opposite side. You, most of us here are neither in the elite class nor at the bottom, we're somewhere in the middle. And that's just based on privilege and uh, uh, the comfort of our daily lives and the amount of uh, freedom we have in our daily lives. The Christian answer to hierarchy is not to break it down. The answer, the Christian answer for in, inequality, inequity, the fact that different, some people have plenty and more than they need, some people have not enough, the Christian answer is not take from the rich and give to the poor. The Christian answer is be holy in the midst of an unholy world. God someday will bring his kingdom and he will make us all equal. He will redistribute as he seems, sees fit. He will uh, bring down the mighty. He will lift up the fallen. But the thing is, when we do that, we mess it up. Always. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just look at the last hundred years of uh, communist attempts to make people equal. The only way to make everybody equal is to kill them all. And that's what communism does. It, uh, communism is responsible in the name of equality for killing uh, hundreds of millions of people across the world. So we humans, that's our Tower of Babel. We think that we can create the kingdom, and time and time again, God shows us, no, you can't. You cannot create the kingdom. And I got a big problem with churches that say we're building the kingdom. We are not. God builds his kingdom, and then we get to decide whether or not he uses us. But don't ever think for a moment that you are going to build God's kingdom. It's God who builds the kingdom. It's we who follow. Can anyone say amen to that? Because we want a thing that makes us feel powerful. We need to understand we have no power. God alone has power. The way I live is not because I want to be powerful. It's because I know God has power and I am, I am his. I'm going to be sober. While the world is drunk on its own power, I'm going to be sober. I'm going to realize I have no power but that which my Father in heaven gives me. And I need to use it the way that he has told me, not the way that makes sense to me. So... Christianity enters all these different cultures where there are unjust structures. People are treated unequally. Slaves are taken advantage of. Women are taken advantage of. Our mindset today is, we'll tell those women and slaves to organize and kill the masters. Take what they want. The biblical ethic is not that. So it tells slaves, like we had last week, obey your masters, submit to your masters, even when they are unjust and cruel to you, when you suffer unjustly, when evil people persecute you, that makes you like Jesus and it's a blessing to you and you will be rewarded for it. And just so we're clear, will God reward all his faithful? Yes. Are those rewards eternal? Yes. Will they far eclipse any pain of this present hour? Yes. yes. When we're clear about that, we have the strength to hear this hard word. And it's going to go on. It's going to go down to women. 
We live in a post-feminist era, or pre present feminist era, where it's been argued for a long time, men and women are indistinguishable, they're absolutely the same, they need to be treated absolutely equal, um, and so uh, the Bible says a bit different. It, it says they're co-heirs with men, and they're equally made in God's image. Even so, it's going to enter in and say, women live differently in the household than the men they're married to. And we've heard stuff like this before, and if we keep reading the Bible, we're going to keep reading it again. And my invitation to you every time we do this is uh, consider the wisdom of it. There's wisdom here. Can you receive it? Or are we going to be people who just say, well, it doesn't fit my value, so I'm throwing it out. Just beware whenever you come to the Bible and it doesn't already fit your values and you just dismiss it, you're taking your soul in your hands. So I'm not going to say you have to conform to this 100% and we have to turn back the clock 2,000 years and live like ancient Romans. I'm not saying that. I am saying we're living in an era now where this gender ideology has gone to an extreme place where people are literally believing there is no difference between men and women. With the transsexual ideology, people believe that men really are fundamentally no different than women, that testosterone, estrogen, XX versus XY chromosomes don't matter at all, that men and women are interchangeable, and that all of this, this man-woman stuff, this is just ancient stuff from the past, these ignorant bigots. Never mind what biology says, never mind what, <laughs> what, I mean, anyone who's raised multiple kids, boys and girls, knows boys and girls are different. Men and women are different. Anyone who's been married to a person of the opposite sex knows they're different. Now, in God's eyes, yes, exactly the same worth in his image, yes, we have to affirm all that. But even so, the Bible takes the notion that men and women are different and have different roles in the household and in the family. Something worth thinking and talking about. So here we go. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them, your husbands, do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So are women supposed to be pure and reverent? Yeah, they are. It just said they're supposed to see. Yeah, you're supposed to be pure and reverent. Pure means not evil, has no evil in you. And reverent means you fear the Lord rightly. Okay. So women are supposed to be pure and reverent. It's supposed to be reflected in their lives. And they're supposed to submit to their husbands. Well, what if their husband's a jerk? What then? Then they get to call it quits and leave? Let's, let's come back to that question. Let's look at verse 3. Your beauty, it's talking to wives, women, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Has anybody ever heard this, that women shouldn't be dressing nice or wearing lots of garments or uh, uh, lots of jewelry or uh, doing fancy things to their hair? Women, uh, women, have we ever heard this before? Have you ever heard this passage before? Okay, a couple of you have, a couple of you not. Some people hear that and go, oh, that is shaming me for my beauty. That's a modern framework. Why on earth would it be correcting this? And I, I'm wary of preachers who try and read the minds of the biblical authors. It just says, don't do it. It's safe just not to do it. Safer than to say, I know the mind of Peter. Even so, do you think this is really Peter saying, you women just need to be plain and feel disgusting all the time? Do you think he's saying that? <laughs> the kids know that's, that's not the right answer. 
Let me ask you this. Do women have power in their beauty? Is women's beauty powerful? When there is something powerful, are we supposed to throw it around and act like it's not powerful, or are we supposed to treat it responsibly? Man, these kids are kicking y'all's butts. We know that with power comes responsibility. And boy, would I love for my beauty to just be so distracting for people. But historically, people have known that women's beauty far eclipses men's. It has a different psychological effect. Cross-culturally, women are just really something. So women have this power, and are they going to use it to distract from God or add to his glory in their lives? What he's saying is... When you do these ornate things, why do women do these things? Why do they wear ornate jewelry and fancy clothes and do fancy things with their hair? Why do women do that? <laughs> okay. Okay, and men are sinners too. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay, let's talk about the practical reasons. What, what, what need does it fulfill for women to do these things? What, why would a woman do these things? Uh, it makes them feel good about themselves. Okay, yeah, I, I, used to, uh, I used to have a roommate who she was not trying to impress me, and she wasn't going out, but she would dress a certain way, and I would go, don't you know the way that that affects people? And she would say, this is just who I am. This is just how I feel. And it's, there's a certain way that women have just been instructed to operate in the world. That's part of it. Socially, what impact does it have when women put all this effort into their appearance and stuff? What, Christopher, go ahead. Okay, so seeking a mate is one part of it. So are you going to attract a mate with outward appearance stuff or character stuff? Do you really want to be coupled with a person who's only drawn to you for your looks, or would you rather have someone drawn to you for what's, what's inside? I'm talking to a bunch of women that are like, I'm done with this now, Jeffrey. I'm not looking for a new husband. So, but listen, what's the other reason that women continue to do this stuff? It's often a status thing with other women. Socially, when you look cross-culturally at who puts the pressure on women to look or behave a certain way, it's usually not men. It's usually women. It's other women. It's socially reinforced norms. And here he's saying, uh, don't give in to this stuff and seeking a mate on, on, on silly grounds. Don't give in to this stuff of status. Don't be trying to, to prove that you're prettier than or richer than or more tasteful than these other women. Rather, focus on the inner part. And one might say, well, can't I do both? And scripturally, I think the answer is no. They're kind of at odds with one another. Let's go on. Verse 4, rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So the feminist voice immediately comes and says, he's just trying to get the women to shut up. He just wants them quiet and barefoot in the kitchen. Um... I'm not sure that's exactly what he's doing here. Let's, let's read on a little bit more. Verse 5, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Lord just means boss, right, or master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. It's going to talk about fear a lot in this chapter. Now, there is a good fear, fear of the Lord. Any other fear? Fear of rejection by your female friends who don't think you dress well enough. Fear of rejection by a mate that you are attracted to, but he might not be attracted to you. He's saying you shouldn't fear those things. 
You should only fear the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, you practice this submission in your lives, not just with the Lord, but with your own husband. You, you practice submission with him. And if you read Ephesians, you know that men are supposed to be practicing submission with the Lord, and then they're supposed to be practicing lordship in their household as Christ is Lord of the church. He died for the church, right? He pours himself out for the church. He suffers for the church. He says that's how men should be towards their families. But we live in this conditional age, right, where, well, if you don't do for me, I'm not going to do for you. You notice he, Peter doesn't do this. He says no matter who your husband is, no matter how he treats you, you live this way. Well, that's pretty convenient for the men, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And then the question is, whenever we continue to, to serve and bless people who are bad to us, what happens then? Let me ask you that. When we continue to serve and bless people who harm us, are mean to us, are cruel to us, what happens then? Say that again, Johnny. The Lord blesses us, and I heard another voice. Cassie, did you say something? Oh, that was Raven. What happens then? They won't stop. So some people don't stop. Some people, yeah, we want to, I've heard Christians do this. If you, keep, if you kill them with kindness, eventually they'll give in and they'll be good. Sometimes, sometimes. There are some people that are converted as they look at you and they just go, what's wrong with her? She keeps blessing me while I'm so cruel to her. Some people eventually go, this is amazing. I want to know what you're about. I, I, I want to have the, but a lot of people just go, yeah, take it. You do as I say. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to enjoy it. You just do exactly as I say, and I don't care how you feel. There are people like that in the world. And then at that point, scripturally, we just have to kill those people, right? <laughs> a couple of you were just like, ah, you're joking. And a couple of you were like, uh, no. No, at that point, what does Jesus do with people who keep slandering him, keep persecuting him? What does Jesus do? He keeps loving them. It magnifies his glory. Not only is he indifferent to it, but it makes him even more righteous as he continues to pour himself out for them. Though they are sliding him, though they are sliding him, still he is waiting. Waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with them earnestly, plead with them gently. He will forgive if they only believe. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful, Jesus will save you. I remember that one. We sing these words. We're talking about these abusive, narcissistic, awful, ugly people, and we're saying, oh, Jesus loves them. We should care for them. And then when it comes to our lives, we're going, hey, Forget you, man. You can't treat me that way. I don't like you no more. Get away from me. We, we don't pour ourselves out the way Jesus does. We spend a lot of time justifying being mean to those who are mean to us. And what the scriptures tell us is when people curse you, you bless them. When they revile you, you love them. It is the most unnatural way to go through life, is it not? Jesus doesn't call us to be natural. He calls us to be supernatural. That's why he sends us his spirit, without which we can do nothing that pleases him. Let's hear what the husbands have to do. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate. That phrase, in the same way, is pretty important, I think, here. 
Here's the tenor set with slaves and your wives. Now, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Do you think he's making a dig at women for being weak there? No, he's saying your job as ones who are strong is to care for the weak. Respect them as the weaker partner and as heirs with you. Heir means you receive the exact same blessing. Heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And what he's saying right there is what it sounds like. If you are bad to your spouse, especially men, if you are bad to your spouse, then you might lift up prayers, but God isn't going to hear them. Sin separates us from God. And we like to talk about a God who listens to everybody's prayers. That's not the God we've got. It's very clear throughout Isaiah, throughout James, God attends upon the prayers of his righteous ones. And when you do not treat your wife right, you are not right with God. It doesn't matter what your church thinks of you. It doesn't matter what your friends think of you. It doesn't matter what your neighbors think of you. It only matters what God thinks of you. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who says, I don't want to hear what a man believes until I see how he treats his wife. And there's some deep wisdom in that. And let me tell you, I give my wife a little hard time every now and again. It's because we flirt with each other a little bit. That's how we flirt. But if you've ever seen me just being abusive to my wife, you warn me that my salvation is at stake and my role as a pastor is at stake. Because a man should always honor and respect his wife. Now, even if I don't, she, according to the scriptures, still has to submit as best as she's able. But God help me if I do not honor and respect my wife. She'll... You'll feel sorry for her. You'll go, oh, she's submitting to that poor guy. Well, she will be forever in Christ's glory, and I will be forever punished for my wife. So you tell me who the lucky one is there. Anyway, we're both aiming to go to heaven, so we treat each other well. I personally believe that on the day of the Lord, far more women and slaves are going to be welcomed into the kingdom than men. If you've had to submit and go through abuse and give that to God... That sanctifies you. If you haven't ever had to and you've been an abuser, I have a hard time believing that you're going to be welcome in the kingdom. All right, it's noon. Uh, I can do the rest in 10 minutes. I appreciate you all being um, gracious with me. This is God's holy word. We can, we can do 10, and by 10 it sometimes means 20 minutes. God bless you guys. All right, verse 8. <laughs> Finally, all of you, be like-minded. Okay, that means seek common identity in Christ in your inmost parts. We're not being special snowflakes here. We're being like-minded. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. That means put yourself in someone else's shoes emotionally. Love one another the way that Christ loves you and me. Love them. Be compassionate. That's another way, you know, consider their feelings. And be humble. That's the opposite of prideful, right? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. This is ground we've gone over, isn't it? On the contrary... Repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So this is not saying, be. you ever met someone phony who's mad at you and they just say, oh, bless your heart. That's a curse. It's not saying that. It's saying genuinely bless somebody. When they curse you, when they revile you, find the love of Christ in your heart and bless them. Mean it. Because when you do this, you inherit a blessing from the Father. Verse 10, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil 
and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. That's why we're saying that, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, right? That is absolutely essential for faith. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. This is what I was saying a minute ago, right? God attends upon the prayers of the righteous. But what about the wicked? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if evildoers get that hook in you, and they set you off, and you're speaking evil against them and hating on them, well, they have just dragged you into hell, haven't they? Some might go, well, that's just natural. I'm just, I'm just being natural, and that's the whole point. Jesus doesn't call you to be natural. He calls you to die and be born again. That's why we need that new birth. Jesus said no one will inherit the kingdom unless they be born again. So we're going to talk about that born-again thing. He's going to talk about the waters of baptism, the waters of the flood. That's going to be the final thing that we dwell upon here, the new birth and how important that is. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? The inference here is, okay, a lot of people, if you're doing good, are not going to want to harm you, but some people still will. And there are going to be people in your life, like Raven was talking about, who just don't quit, who just keep going. But what then? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. You'll see that little B there. You'll, well, you won't see it up here, but if you're in your Bibles, you'll see that the actual rendering of, of that in Greek, I don't know why they changed that, is do not fear what they fear. That's a much better rendering because it's correcting us. If you feel what, fear what other people can do to you, if you want to fit in, if you want to be liked, if you don't want people to hate you and be mean to you, if you have the same fears of normal people, then you are not going to make it through the time of trial. You're going to give in. You're going to squeal. Do not have the fears of the people of this world. Does that mean we shouldn't fear anything? No. Jesus said, do not fear them who can hurt and destroy the body but do nothing else. Fear only him who can destroy your body and cast your soul into hell. That's Jesus. Or not, well, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. He says, fear only God. If you rightly fear the Lord, you need not fear anything or anybody else. But if you find that you still fear others, then you still have some sanctification to be done. Verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's addressed to every single member of the church. If anybody asks you what your hope is for at the end of history, what keeps you going through life, make sure you're able to tell them. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's a hard thing for me. <laughs> there are some people I get irritated with, and I speak with irritation. God help me. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now, like Raven pointed out, some people should be ashamed, and they aren't. They're just monsters. But God will ashamed them on that last day, and you get to see it, and it's going to be glorious. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We talked about this last week. He said the same thing. For Christ also suffered once for sins, didn't he? The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's me and you. That already happened. And does Jesus participate in evil? No. If Jesus suffered unjustly for the unrighteous... And yet he remains spiritually pure. You know, some people, they refuse to get hurt because they say, that it'll make me, it'll hurt my spirit. Well, the scriptures say, no, doesn't have to. 
If you do it right in Christ, you don't have to be damaged by this. While you are being slighted, you can be holy if it, you let it bring it, you closer to Christ. It'll be to bring you to God. Oh, yeah. I, I, for, I'll read verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. If he's done that for us, then how should we live? He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. A lot of people get here and go, uh, uh, okay, I'm going to go on. Who is he talking about? To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. We've heard that story, haven't we? But there's some, there's some more to that story that is written down in a book called Enoch. It was written before Jesus came in the flesh, but it's not in the Bible. But Enoch details these days before the flood. And you remember, it just barely covers it in that chapter of Genesis. Before the flood, God was mad. Why? There were these angels in the heavens. They looked down and they said, hey, they got some pretty women down there. And they came down and they, they coupled up with these women and they had children with them, the Nephilim who were spiritually evil, they spread spiritual evil around the world, and everybody's heart was inclined towards evil continually. And God was sad that he made us, and then he sent the flood as a genocidal event to wipe out all this evil. When you read Enoch, Enoch was taken up by God. It's, he's in the Bible. He's in the Bible. It says he was taken up with God. He walked with God. He, he didn't die here on earth. He just went with God. And Enoch, the book of Enoch, details his time with God where God sends him as a prophet to these rebellious angels who were kept in Tartarus and imprisoned for the day of judgment. And they will be punished forever. And according to Peter, when you read Paul, Jesus is the new Adam, right? He does everything right that Adam did wrong. He redeems humanity. When you read Peter, Jesus is the new Enoch. He descended to the dead. He witnessed to the good and the evil down there alike. And he also witnessed to these ancient evil demon angels. That's what he's referring to here. So verse 19, after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Hopefully that all fits together for you now. It was, and it was, oh, and the ark was only a few people, eight in all, and they were saved through water. Isn't that a weird concept? We usually read the story of Noah and we say, well, it was the ark that saved them, wasn't it? They were trying to get away from the water. The water killed everybody, right? So how is he saying that the water of the flood saved Noah and the others on the ark? And I think the key to understanding this is Romans chapter 6. Do you remember when Paul said, you know, there are some of you who are saying that because God's grace is more powerful than your sin, that we can just keep on sinning and God's grace will abound. And he says, that is ridiculous. Don't you know that any of you who were baptized have died and been born again in Christ? And when you're born again, you cannot sin anymore. You don't desire sin. You don't persist in sin. He says it's ridiculous if you continue in sin. It's the waters of baptism that mark our death to our old self. And then we go into the grave, Paul said, and we are born again in Christ Jesus. And we now lead new lives in him. If you don't remember that, you need to read Romans again. I tried to drill that in real hard when we were there. Baptism is not a photo op for a nice little bathing ceremony. Baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now, before people start getting set off, because some Protestants are very sensitive to this, 
Is it baptism that saves? What is it that saves? Faith in Jesus, which he gives us. We can't save ourselves. It's faith alone that saves. However, when you have that faith, you're driven into the waters of the flood, the waters of baptism, and you come out a new person, born again. I hope I'm speaking clearly enough so that everyone understands. So with that in mind, let's finish this language from Peter. In the ark were only a few people, eight in all. They were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. So I just preached against the plain meaning of this is baptism saves you. But that clearly cannot be what it means because we know we can't just go out into the world and dunk people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and expect that everybody's saved. That makes no sense. It's not baptism that saves people. It's only a faith in Christ Jesus that saves that results in baptism. So, so it's not the result, removal of dirt from the body. It's the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. That's what baptism is. It's not a, it's not a bath. It's a public testimony of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want to be with him for all eternity? Then the clear path established in the Gospels is to be convicted of your sins, repent of your sins, be baptized, walk in newness of life, and die or live until Christ returns in glory. Now, there are a lot of people that get bent out of shape about this, about baptism, and they don't care what Peter says. They just say, baptism doesn't matter. If baptism doesn't matter, why on earth when Jesus, whenever he was resurrected and he was giving the last commission, why would he say, go into the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit? Why would he say that if it doesn't matter? I'm of the mind that Jesus says the things that matter. I'm of the mind that it matters how men treat their wives and how wives treat their husbands, and what we do with our money, and how we treat the powerless, and how we govern our, our free time. I think all of these things matter, and I think it matters that when we say we love Jesus and are in submission to him, that we willingly enter into covenant with him through baptism. I think that's why Peter talks about it. I think that's why Paul talks about it. I think why Jesus talks about it. And so I get frustrated with people whenever they say, well, what about the guy on the cross? As though that's something we should count on. You remember, there was a guy on the cross next to Jesus who was a penitent sinner. Jesus said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. I'm not going to argue about that. I, the question for me is not, can God save someone without bad? God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't need my permission, and I don't have to be able to imagine it. But the thing is, when God says, baptize other people, be baptized, I don't put myself in the position of going, actually, that's optional. You don't have to do that. I don't think we at this point in history should be going, oh, that doesn't matter. Only faith matters. I think if it's in the Bible, it matters. And that if we start splitting hairs and going, well, is it repentance that saves? Or is it baptism that saves? Or is it faith that saves? That's where Satan wins. He wants us putting these things against each other. The answer is all of it. All of it. Christ has given us a way to be saved, marked by many different things. If you want them, you're saved. Christ will drive you into his arms in all those ways. If you don't want them, if you want to squeal your way out of it, you're not right with God. That's why this stuff was written down as a litmus test for your and my faith. And I'm not saying, I mean, I am saying that, but I'm not the judge. I don't have a heaven or hell to put you in, but God does, and he has told us who he is and what he wants. It'd be to our benefit to listen, amen?